Hey gang, this is Eric. Good morning to you. It's Tuesday. Oh, what is it? Tuesday, March 19th. The Tuesday after St. Patrick's Day. I suppose it's fitting that I'm I'm wearing green today. I'm wearing my Come On Feel the Illinois shirt today, which is, um, I love the shirt, and I love the record from Sufjan Stevens, if you haven't checked it out. It's a, it's a little, it's got some age on it now, but it's such a good record. I remember seeing him in concert in L.A. when it came out years ago. Anyway, that has nothing to do with today's devotion whatsoever. We are going to be starting a brand new series today, looking at the epistle to the Galatians. And I have taught on this uh, epistle many times. It is, uh, it might be my favorite book in the Bible. Um, it's always kind of a toss-up for me between Romans and, and Galatians, so Paul gets uh, a lot of credit from me. But I think I'm also, uh, I'm partial to Galatians because uh, Luther has famously uh, written, probably, I mean, many people would say, if not the greatest commentary on Galatians, certainly one of the greatest commentaries on Galatians, and really a life-changing, life-altering um, commentary on Galatians. I would encourage you all uh, to pick up a copy. Um, you know, something that I'll be using a lot through this series is um, a book that 1517 published, which is the lecture notes trans transcribed by Luther's students and uh, translated for today's English, and that's Martin Luther's commentary on the Epistle to the Galatians. Look at that cover art. Way to go, Brenton, Brenton Little, man. Killing it with this. Um, but this is a fantastic addition to add to your library. I'm going to be referencing it a lot as we move through uh, Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. So uh, you might want to pick that up too. You can get that at 1517 Publishing. I think it's 1517publishing.org or 1517.org. You can pick it up on Amazon. Just, you know, just uh, type it in to the search bar there and you'll find it. So all right, let's um, let's go ahead and dig into it. Good morning, all. I see Bonnie and Brian and Jesse and Judy and uh, Barb. I don't see anybody else, but I know there's other people there. So, uh, so let's let's begin by today thinking about the big threats in life, the things that are so dear to you that, if threatened, will compel you to action. Uh, maybe maybe a bully is beating up your kid every day at school and making it almost impossible for them to to learn, let alone socialize with any other students. Or, or maybe a person at work is actively working to get you uh, fired. Uh, perhaps a man or woman is flirting with your spouse or is, uh, for that matter, sexually harassing you in the workspace. Uh, these are the important things in life. And when when they are threatened, if we really care about them, we have to do something. I mean, we'll, we might sign up our kids for martial arts or we'll call up the teacher if, if that doesn't work and then the principal and if that doesn't work, well, then we'll pull our kid out. Uh, uh, to counteract that person trying to get us fired, we work harder or we let our bosses know and we may even confront the individual ourselves. And if someone is being inappropriate with our spouse, well, there's no telling <laughs> what one might do. Uh, history is full of examples of people maybe overreacting to uh, such a problem, um, but it's just part of what we do because these are the important things in life. Well, for Paul and for all Christians, what is most dear above even all those things is the gospel. When the gospel is threatened, we must fight, not physically, 
So don't take that away from today's devotion. But spiritually, we have to correct arguments and we have to confront error and anything that would distort the pure gospel as is revealed in the New Testament. And for that matter, the whole Bible. But the New Testament sort of goes on to explain what we see in the Old Testament. And if there's anything that this letter to the Galatians is about, it's that. Fighting for the purity of the gospel. So, before we dive into the introductory text in verses 1 through 9 today, I want to just give you a little historical background about the letter. Uh, the letter to the Galatians is almost certainly Paul's earliest letter um, to a church in the New Testament. It was written about 48 AD and may even be the earliest full writing we have in the New Testament, although some believe that could be James. There's dispute about that. That's not a huge deal either way. <laughs> uh, but the author of the letter is clearly Paul as the writing style, the personal signature in verse one all indicate. Uh, the reason for the writing is very clear throughout, but most clearly articulated in verse six, where we read, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It's Galatians 1, 6. It turns out that Paul had just preached the gospel to those people out there not so long ago, and churches had been formed all along the Galatian countryside, but now they've been infiltrated by a group of people known as the Judaizers, a familiar name to uh, us here. <clears throat> and this group is leading the churches away from belief in the true gospel. They're threatening the gospel, at least in this introductory passage, in three ways. There's three, three ways that they're doing it. First, they deny the authority of the word of the gospel. Second, they're denying the Jesus of the gospel, the sufficiency of Jesus. And then thirdly, they're denying the grace of the gospel or the totality of the grace of the gospel. So, so what do the threats look like, look like and what are Paul's answers? Well, first, denying the authority of the word of the gospel. The enemies of the gospel are undermining the word. As we read throughout this letter, and for that matter, a number of places throughout the New Testament, we see especially Paul's authority challenged because, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he was abnormally born again. He was abnormally chosen to be an apostle, not having walked with Jesus throughout Jesus's whole earthly ministry. And so, in the Galatian churches, this Judaizer group are claiming that Paul's word is not entirely to be trusted. Sure, they say, well, he might, might have told you some of the truth, but not all of the truth. So how does Paul begin his letter? Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. What's he doing? Well, in one sense, he's listing his bona fides. Paul starts off saying, look, Galatians, the reason you can trust my word is because I'm an apostle. What's an apostle? The word literally means sent one. Who's he sent by? Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Or in other words, by the very one who defeated death and proved himself to be God in the flesh through his resurrection, that's the one who sent me. That's true. Remember the story of how Paul was 
converted. The risen Christ shows up to him on the road to Damascus, blinds him, knocks him on his butt, and rebukes him. And Paul says, my word has his seal of approval, his authority backing it. But just in case that's not good enough, and all the brothers are with me. In other words, all the brothers with me agree with me with what I've taught you. So listen up. Now, how does this apply to you today? Well, very simply, skeptics and false Christians, as is the case with this group called the Judaizers, I think learned very early on in the church that one of the best ways to, to try and attack Christianity is to try and attack the authority of the word. And the enemy and his minions know the authority of the church is ultimately built on the foundation of the testimony of the prophets and the apostles. So then, if one wishes to cause doubt or to sow confusion, break up the church, they have to try and undermine the very authority of the gospel that it is built on, the testimony of the apostles and prophets. So, there'll be people that will claim thousands of contradictions in scripture. It's not true. There'll be people that claim the apostles were lying, that it was a big hoax. Of course, not true. There'll be people that claim this is a myth and they'll give whatever reasons they can find to try and back that up. And again, it's not true. It happened in the very beginning. And in response to those charges, I mean, they're nothing new. The apostle Peter writes in his second letter, verse one, chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He goes on just a little further down in that chapter, in verse 21, to say, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, if someone, someone even in the church that looks very, very impressive, denies the authority of the word of God, you can be sure that the credibility of the gospel is being undermined. And when that happens, run away, to quote Monty Python. Run away, run away. But a second threat, or fight, one or the other, as Paul does here. A second threat, second threat. Deny the sufficiency of the Christ of the gospel. My goodness, my goodness, how much I could talk about this in the modern church today. I think it is the issue that we deal with. Maybe the next issue, maybe the next point that he fights, I don't know, to battle. But listen to verse 3 and 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice what Paul chooses to emphasize in his opening, the very death of Jesus Christ. For what? For our sins. Why? To deliver us from the present evil age. According to who? The will of our God and Father. The reason Paul emphasizes this is because, as we'll find out in the rest of this letter, the Judaizers were teaching people basically that Christ's life, death, and resurrection were good. They're good. But that doesn't excuse us or get us off the hook from earning the rest of the way to heaven too. And by doing so, they deny that Christ's life, death, and resurrection are indeed sufficient all by themselves for the salvation of humanity. This would be the modern equivalent of the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, or the Jesus of the Mormons, or the Jesus of Islam, a Jesus who does good things for you, but by himself is not enough to save you. 
But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the real gospel that Paul preaches, says Jesus, the Son of God, suffering in your place is enough. Why? Well, first of all, because he's God. He's the only one qualified to pay the ransom for you to an infinitely holy God for the sins of the entire world. So Romans 5, 18 and 19 say, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the, one, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And yet, as the only perfect man, he's the only one qualified to die for the sins of men. As Hebrews tells us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. And I could go on and on. The Bible is abundantly clear that not only is Jesus sufficient for us, and not anything else or anyone else. That's the point. And this was being denied. When people said, yeah, 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 I mean, it's great that, you know, the Son of God, like, bled for you and died for you and stuff, but <laughs> that's not enough. And this infuriates Paul. Because ultimately, it denies the totality of the grace of the gospel. Look at verses 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, condemned, thrown to hell. That's literally what the word means, anathema, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. As if Paul didn't already say fighting words, he repeats them just to make his point. What is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about the Judaizers denying that grace is enough. They were the preachers that said, yes, yes, grace, 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 but. Yes, grace, grace, yes, 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 if, 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 if. If you're also circumcised. If you obey the ceremonial laws of the Jews. And you must do this and that and this and that. And you can't go bowling and you can't play cards and you can't smoke and you can't drink and you can't hang out with those who do. Now you say, good thing we're past all of that craziness today. <laughs> well, I wish I could say we were. I saw on a church sign recently... It said, it is not true that Jesus did it all. We have to obey his commands. That's all. That's all it said. It is not true that Jesus did it all. We have to obey his commands. And Paul would say, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed for teaching that doctrine of demons. And that is the threat that is always lurking within us. Each one of us is naturally a little legalist. Just looking for a way to contribute to our salvation before God. We want to add just a little thing, just a little teeny something even to what he's done. And I'm telling you, when we do that, when we do that, what we are saying to God is, your perfect holy son's sacrifice on my behalf. It's just not enough. Sorry. 
But though you say his shed blood is enough for the coverage of my sins, I believe I'm so important, so necessary to the fabric of the universe, God, that my obedience, my giving, my loving, my works need to be there too. Oh my goodness, the chutzpah of the human being to think such a thing. That the divine son of God's sacrifice is not enough in and of itself? Like, I'm going to add to that? Nevertheless, we hear again and again and again from the cross these words. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. Contra, terrible church sign. It is true. Jesus did it all. As Paul would go on to say a little bit later in Galatians chapter 2, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, a.k.a. possible by a shred iota of my works, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, some of y'all watching this today might say, Eric, you always talk about this. You're always bringing us back to this. And I say, you bet. And I'm going to continue to put you back on this. Because I know myself and I know other human beings, we are creatures of habit. And our habit is to always go back to relying on our works to be saved. Thus, Martin Luther commenting on this passage in particular in this little book says uh, in his lectures, Quote, for there is no way to remove sin except by grace. This deserves careful notice. For the words are easy, but in temptation it is the hardest thing possible to be surely persuaded in our hearts that we have the forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone entirely apart from any other means in heaven or on earth. End quote. And yet, it's so easy to understand where the Judaizers are coming from. As is always the case with the preaching of unmitigated grace, there is a fear that people will just do whatever they want, that they're going to live in sin. Indeed, that's what Paul deals with and is accused of even teaching at the beginning of Romans 6. Well, if you free people up in all this grace, they're just going to go out and sin so that grace can abound. And Paul says, God forbid it. Literally, like, no, God will forbid it. It's not going to happen. The theologian and pastor, Robert Ferrar Capon, writes, quote, You're worried about permissiveness? About the way the preaching of grace seems to say it's okay to do all kinds of terrible things as long as you just walk in afterward and take the free gift of God's forgiveness? Well, you and I may be worried about seeming to give permission. Jesus apparently wasn't. He wasn't afraid of giving the prodigal son a kiss instead of a lecture, a party instead of probation, and he proved that by bringing in the elder brother at the end of the story and having him raise pretty much the same objections you do. He's angry about the party. He complains that his father is lowering standards and ignoring virtue, that music, dancing, and a fatted calf are in effect just so many permissions to break the law. And to that, Jesus has the father say only one thing. Cut that out. We're not playing good boys and bad boys anymore. Your brother was dead and he's alive again. The name of the game from now on is resurrection, not bookkeeping. End quote. 
As Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote to preachers, if your preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some be of being anti-God's law, you're not preaching the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. So, church, it's real. God saves you through faith in the gospel that his apostles taught, which is that by grace alone, in Christ alone, everything has been done for you to be forgiven. So now, you have basically heard the threats to the gospel that the people of Galatia are actually embracing, and by extension, the same threats to the gospel that exist today in every one of our own hearts and around us in the world today. So throughout this letter, you will see Paul's passion for the defense of the gospel. You will see him seek to reel this church back in, and you will see him break down how it could be that God can do all this. And so my prayer throughout this series is that you may be more aware of these things that you may have added or taken away from the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ, and that as a result, you would be stripped of those things and be ever more dependent upon Christ as we continue uh, through this book. All right, gang, that's it for today. You got to, I got a little preachy. Uh, I get this way when I'm talking about picking a theological fight over the gospel. So, all right, we'll see you next Tuesday. Have a great week, gang.